Josh found a seat in the corner and looked at his view. The coffee bar was a little more crowded than usual. The local college was gearing up for the fall semester. Others seemed to be enjoying themselves, talking, laughing. It seemed as if they didn't have a care in the world. And maybe they didn't. Josh reminisced about his own college years. Life seemed to be so simple then. The future was wide open, his dreams seemed limitless, and money was no object. <laughs> he couldn't, think, couldn't help but think about how much life had changed. Now, he hides his occasional visit to the coffee bar from his wife. The justification of paying for a $4 quick energy boost is really difficult for Elaine to understand, especially while they're wrestling with how to pay for their son Aiden's soccer camp right before school starts. As Josh thinks about this, the coffee cup in front of him becomes filled with liquid, hot guilt. His eyes glaze over, and he slowly twirls the cup on the small table in front of him, and he takes another sip. Life has taken some unexpected turns. Now all he can think about is how they're going to make it out of the hole into which he and Elaine have dug themselves. They didn't want to become one of those couples who couldn't pay their bills, but it's getting really close. His mortgage payment was just adjusted up a couple hundred dollars a month. Credit card balances that he swore would be paid off before that 0% introductory rate let go, he hasn't. And now that double-digit interest rate is staring him in the face. The minimum payment was all they could afford last month, and it looks like it's going to be the same this month. He doesn't even want to think about how many months are left on their lease payments on their cars. And now, driving a luxury car just seems stupid. What are they going to do about soccer camp? He can't tell his son no. Aiden didn't do anything to put them in this situation. And besides... Josh never missed any kind of a camp or a trip growing up. His parents always took care of everything. He was supposed to build on the life his parents had given him, not take a step backwards. He doesn't want to limit his child's dreams. Maybe, maybe he'll get a decent bonus this Christmas. If they can just tread water until then, they'll buy some presents and pay off some of their debt. Normally, they use his bonus to buy presents entirely, but maybe this year they can be a little more frugal. Maybe they can at least put a dent in their debt. <laughs> that won't work. They wipe out his bonus every year on gifts, even before they get it. <sighs> Man, I need some more money, Josh mumbled to himself. He finished off the last bit of coffee in his cup, took the cup back up to the counter, and then before he left, he walked over to the register where he was greeted by a hyper-caffeinated college-aged employee. You guys hiring? Josh asked. Always, bro, said the employee. Josh took the application from the guy's hand, said thanks, and gave a solemn head nod. He walked out of the coffee bar, application in hand, with a lingering sense of embarrassment. Did I really just ask for this?
Well, money's a ball and chain around our ankle, limiting our life's movement. I mean, that's how it can feel sometimes, right? Yes. Right, right, like you've never been there. I've been there, and my guess is every one of us has. And the feeling can get to the place where it's like if we could just get a few more zeros added onto our bank account, legally, then we would be freed up. Some of the weight would come off of that ball and chain. The clasp would loosen around our ankle. So since you won't, like, on your own admit that you felt that way, let me give you some statistics to out you. Uh, Here's what the survey says. Uh, So I'm now family feud. Uh, Survey says 50% of you have more bills to pay in a month than you have money. 55% of you feel like you have too much debt. And 60% say that finances are causing significant stress in your family. It's just becoming a way of life for us. That financial difficulty is in our homes, in our lives. But for those of us who choose to pursue the simple life, and it is a choice, the Bible offers some very real help. And I want to talk this morning about five principles from Scripture. And there are way more, but just five, so that we're not here until, like, way into the evening. Five that have helped me and have helped hundreds of thousands of families make sense out of money. Now, the first one I want to talk about is really a heart issue. It's a beginning point that you have to set in your life. It's a drawing a line in the sand, and it's this. We have to remember who the owner is. Psalm 24, verse 1, David says it this way, and it's an idea woven all throughout Scripture. David says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. The idea is simple. God's the owner of everything, and I take the position of a manager. It applies to everything in my life, my house, my car, all of my possessions, my bank account, even my very life. It's something Connie and I have tried to live with throughout our entire married life. And it is a decision you adopt, not a feeling. When our income has been good and our savings is growing, God's the owner, we're the managers. When we were so poor, truth here, when we were so poor that we were both working full-time jobs and we still qualified for food stamps. Now, I have no idea what God wanted with our orange couch, our purple dresser, our green piano, and our roach-infested apartment. But we still said that those were our possessions, you know. We still said God's the owner, and if he wants to trade him in, he can. God's the owner, we're the managers. In 2009, when we both lost our jobs, we still tried to take that posture. And we said, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. The world and all who live in it. We belong to God. He's in control of this. We belong to him. I need to be reminded of that truth in times of uncertainty and in times when things are going fabulously in my life. I need to remember that everything I am and I myself belong to God. Remembering that is like setting your compass on true north. It helps set my soul and my heart on a right course to deal with the ups and downs that come my way in life. And it keeps me from getting too attached to the things in this life. It's the first principle you have to get right in your life. And it helps you with the others in Scripture, like developing a plan. This is where I lose a lot of you. Everyone in this world seems to know 
what your money is supposed to accomplish. If you don't believe me, just watch your mailbox this week or watch your email inbox. Everyone seems to know. Retailers tell you what your money should be spent on. Banks tell you where you should save and how you should borrow money. Auto dealers are the best. They tell you that your money should be spent on their brand new cars. Everybody has ideas for what your money should go towards. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But the problem is there's so much noise that we can get distracted, we can get lost, and we can get disoriented. So what are we trying to accomplish with our money? I'm going to confess a lot of things in this service to you. Some of you are like me. I grew up in a family that really didn't talk about how to have a plan for what to do with your money. It was never a priority in my family when I grew up. A plan was never talked about, and as far as I know, it didn't exist. My family lived from paycheck to paycheck, is what my understanding is from growing up. And as I look back on my parents' life, there's a lot of evidence now that that was pretty much how my parents have lived. The Bible teaches a much different way for us to live our lives. For example, Solomon says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks and give careful attention to your herds. For riches don't endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. It's interesting that one of the wealthiest men who ever lived would say those things. Solomon's point is a tremendous one. Whether it's flocks or herds, 501Ks, savings, checking, Pay attention to it. Nothing lasts forever, Solomon says. I think it's a lesson we've all learned since 2008. Nothing lasts forever. So we have to take care of what we have today. We have to spend wisely, save wisely, invest wisely, give wisely. And none of that happens without a well-thought-through plan of where every dollar is accounted for. Again, to be perfectly honest... I needed help with this. Maybe you do too. I had to get my pride out of the way and say that there are a lot of things I don't know about planning for my money in my life. And then I found verses like Proverbs 1.5, which says, Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. To help me get over my pride. Help me be able to admit things like, I don't understand the stock market. Anybody with me on that? I heard some laughter, nervous laughter. I just don't. So I've had to get help with that. Ask somebody to help me understand it. But what I realized is there are things that I understand that other people don't. And I don't make them feel stupid when they come to talk to me. So I'm looking for someone who will help me understand things that I don't understand about finances. When we started working on a family budget, I didn't know the ratios. Is it okay to spend 75% of your income on a mortgage? I kind of had an intuition about that one. So asking for help is a good thing to do. It's a smart thing to do, according to Proverbs 1.5. Let the discerning get guidance. I'm very grateful for the ministries around here at the church. This spring, Connie and I went through Financial Peace University. We went through it. It was a 13-week course at that point. We resisted it for a long time because we went, Really? I'm not sure I commit to anything for 13 weeks, except for my wife. I mean, it's been longer than that with her. But even that I thought a long time about. Um, But now it's down to a nine-week course. 
that offers help on the things we'll talk about this morning and then some on how we deal with this issue of money. It's done with grace. It's done with understanding. And it starts with a realistic appraisal of where you are and how do you get to where you want to be. There's information in the program about that this morning gives you some help and some ideas on when you could get started with just an introduction, not a full commitment to the nine weeks. We also have a team of trained financial counselors here at the church. I don't know if you're aware of that. Counselors who can help you if you're in financial trouble or if you're on the other end of the continuum and you go, I have more money than I know what to do with, but I don't know where to begin. All across the spectrum, people to try to help you figure out a way forward. Proverbs again says it's smart to ask for help. And I've asked for help in finances in a lot of areas in my life over the last three or four years. And I'm grateful for the help that I've gotten through the ministries of this church and in other areas. Connie and I now are beginning to feel freedom now that we have a plan and we're sticking to it. By the way, developing the plan took work. Sticking to the plan is harder work, though. And that's what we're working on. Third, the third principle from Scripture is this. Don't dive into debt. Now, sadly, that's a little too late for most of us in the room. We're already there. The Bible is pretty clear on this one that it'd be far better for us never to enter into debt of any kind. It's hazardous to our emotional, spiritual, relational, and physical health. Here's what Solomon again said in Proverbs 22. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Now, if you're questioning Solomon's wisdom on the word slave, if it seems a little bit harsh, let's do an exercise. Okay, you ready to participate? Thanks, that was very encouraging. All right, current statistics say that 75% of the people in the U.S. have a credit card. So 75% of you in the room will have a credit card. So just to verify, what I'd like you to do is take out your purse, take out your wallet, and hand it to the person next to you and let them look for credit cards. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. All right, so if you won't do that, let's participate in another way. 75% of us have a credit card. And on average, if you have a credit card in the U.S., it's going to carry a balance. Any idea how much that balance is? $5,000. That's the average balance on that credit card in the U.S. Current interest rate average right now in the U.S. as of Friday morning is 15%. Okay, you tracking with me? Everybody in this room, 75% of the people in this room will have a credit card with a $5,000 balance at 15% interest. Uh, just for fun, the attendant, combined attendance this morning in the two services, that will represent $1.4, $1.4 million worth of debt just for Westridge this morning. Staggering. If you make the minimum monthly payment, which is $65, on that credit card, how long will it take you to pay that off? What month and what year will you pay that off? So turn to the person beside you and make your best guess on when you would have that paid off, month and year. Never is not the right answer. All right, so, so when do you think? Somebody tell me what you think. 
40 years? Too long. 20 years. Okay, you're actually better off than that. So here's the answer. July 2024. It would take you 12 years at $65 a month to pay off that $5,000 loan. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? That's not as bad as some of you thought. Wait, here's how much of that that $5,000 loan would end up costing you. $12,000 in interest. But it gets better. Oh, it gets better because creditors know that if they can get you to take out one credit card, you're going to take out more. Because if the, the statistics say that if you have one credit card, you'll have three. And all three of them will carry that average of $5,000. So you'll be $15,000 in debt, and over the life of the loan, you'll pay off $51,000. Maybe Solomon was not harsh enough when he said the borrower is slave to the lender. The issue in our life really isn't that we don't make enough money for most of us. Because studies also show that making more money doesn't lead to less debt. Our pension for overconsumption goes up as our income goes up. So as we make more money, we pile up more consumer debt. The reality for us is that at some point, we have to simply make the decision to stop diving into debt. And so I just simply challenge you today to make the decision that it stops today in your life. And if you're in debt, to get into a plan to get out of debt. Connie and I have made that decision. In two years, we will be debt-free, including our son's student loans. The Live Free Ministry can get you out of debt. They can help you get on a plan to get out of debt. And in most cases, you can do that in between 18 months and three years, no matter where you are. They can work with you. You can pray. You can ask God's help. You can work with our ministry here to change behaviors in your life. Because in the majority of situations, in the majority, when I dive into debt, it's not about money. It's about me and my heart. Fourth principle is this. I need to grow in generosity. Ephesians 4 says, Use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. God wants us to give. And he does for some very simple reasons. wants us to give. Giving primarily breaks down the selfish tendencies in my life. In fact, Jesus scolded the religious leaders of his day about that very thing, about how selfish they were. In Matthew 23, he's talking to them, and he says, you're really careful to tithe, to give 10% of even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, like justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. It's kind of interesting, if you study that passage in the, the other Gospels and what Jesus says in total there, because Jesus mentions the, the specific herbs of dill and mint and cumin. And if you're not a cook and you're not familiar with those herbs, really tiny herbs when they're dried and cured out. And you can almost picture the Pharisees lining up those herbs out of their herb gardens, crushing them up and putting them on a mirror and 
like lines of cocaine with a razor blade, slicing them out and getting down to exactly one-tenth that they're going to give to God. So that they're sure they don't give any more than a tenth and they keep 90% for themselves. It's this selfishness in their heart. And Jesus says, you're getting this all wrong. You're giving to the creator of the universe. You're giving to the one who spoke everything into existence from nothing. The one who owns everything that ever has been and ever will be. You're not giving to God because he needs what you have. That's ludicrous. You're giving because it breaks down the tendency in your heart to cling selfishly to what you have. And it begins to create this generosity in you that spills over into every aspect of your life. Your relationships, your friendships, to the poor, to the needy, beyond your relationships. When I think about this heart of generosity that it cultivates when we give, I think about a friend of mine named Brett, who for years has carried a $100 bill in his billfold, just tucked away in the back, and he doesn't spend it. It's not for him. He carries it because he's looking for a waiter or a waitress who's a single parent or who's having a tough day, and he just wants to bless them. And I was with him one time when he did this, and he had a $20 meal, and he paid for the meal, and he left a $100 tip. And he just wrote a note that said, I just want you to know I'll be praying for you and I hope that God helps you turn your situation around. He didn't get to the place where he could leave a $100 tip easily. He had a plan. And he was working on his money and he was out of debt and he was at this place where he could just be generous. He was having fun with his money. The fifth principle is this idea of, at some point, declaring enough. Enough. It's a great thing to want the best for our family, for our spouse, for our kids, for our friends. But at some point, we have to examine the cost. Marketing uh, people know how to push our emotional buttons and try to convince us that what they have is the best, and that we should have it for the people we love. They make their branded goods the standard by which we gauge and compare our love for our children or the people around us. So we want our kids to wear the best, drive the best, experience the best. And they have this ability to turn our naturally good desires into a money pit. I am convinced that we need to find another way to keep score. We need to teach our kids, by example, that money and houses and cars are not an indicator of our value. That having more doesn't mean I'm worth more. So I wonder what it would be like if we just did something totally counter-cultural, biblical. What if we stopped comparing ourselves to anybody else? What if we took Paul's position as he talked to the young man Timothy and he said, 
godliness with contentment is great gain. Because we brought nothing into this world and we're not going to take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing, let's be content with that. To focus on godliness and contentment rather than accumulating more stuff. What if we decided that our purchases are going to be guided by a completely different standard? Not guided by marketers. Not guided by what anybody else is wearing or doing. What if we decided that when we went out to purchase transportation, we just purchased transportation, not the hottest new car based on what marketing said? What if we purchased a house based on what we needed for people? I don't need a four-bedroom house for two people. What if we just said enough is enough and decided and declared that the Joneses are the winners and we're going to stop keeping up? And we made the decision that whether God raises our income or we find out that the lottery winner in Lapeer, Michigan this week is a long-lost relative, if we come into some money, then we're going to use that money to pay off our debt, to set our retirement, and then find a way to give the rest away to meet needs around us. It's a simpler way to live. It's a life-giving way of life that God calls us to. So let me wrap all this up with a final caution. The Bible talks about money more than any other topic, except one. And it does that because money is such an important, critical, consuming factor in our lives, whether we're struggling or solid or have a surplus. We have to learn to deal with it wisely or the problems with money will follow us all the way to our grave. But the one thing that the Bible talks about more than money is the kingdom of God. Our relationship with God. And Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 that when our perspective on money is wrong, it has a direct impact on our relationship with God. When we put our focus on things that will rust out and break and can be stolen, it takes our focus off of where our life should be on God. And Jesus said, you can't worship two things at once. Love one God and you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of the one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. And worshiping money isn't just a problem for the rich. It can happen when you're working two jobs and still qualify for food stamps. Trust me. Just a little more money, God, that'll solve my problem. No, it won't. Because my focus and my trust is shifted easily, no matter where I am on the economic scale. And I find it interesting in my own life that some of the same issues I struggled with when I qualified for food stamps, I still struggle with now. Making sense of money begins as a heart issue. That's what Jesus was saying. God owns it all. We need to be wise and have a plan, but we first have to settle the question, do I trust God to care for me? Am I making regular investments in my relationship with him. 
if I really believe this life is short and eternity is long, then the most logical, biblical way to live is to simply worship God first and then use my money wisely.